Due to the adult subject matter of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Mysteriously Morbid. I'm your host, Melissa Lee. Let's crawl down the long and winding road together, questioning death, life, and everything creepy in between. So sit back, relax, and try not to get too comfortable as we go down the rabbit hole that is mysteriously morbid. Hey guys, welcome back to Mysteriously Morbid. I'm your host, Melissa Lee, and thanks for joining me tonight. So tonight I thought we could talk about something kind of interesting. I have a true crime calendar on my desk at work, and it was actually the topic in case of the day. And again, to follow theme, this is another unsolved crime from the area. Picture this. It happened in 1982, September. It all started with taking extra strength Tylenol. These are the Chicago Tylenol murders. So our story begins in Chicagoland in 1982. It's September 29th, and 12-year-old Mary Kellerman of Chicago suddenly passed away after taking extra-strength Tylenol. Later that day, in a different suburb, a man named Adam Janis also mysteriously died after taking the same medication. His brother Stanley and sister-in-law Teresa of Lyle later also died after taking Tylenol from the same bottle. Within a few days, Mary McFarland, Paula Prince, and Mary Reiner all died in similar incidences. After all these people died under mysterious circumstance, everyone sat down and realized that everyone had recently taken Tylenol. Once realized, testing was performed on those specific bottles of Tylenol, and lo and behold, Tylenol was not found in the capsules. Potassium cyanide was. Now, different salts such as sodium cyanide and potassium cyanide are considered highly toxic. So, of course, at that point, officials decided to release a warning to consumers that there are potentially toxic bottles of extra strength Tylenol on the market. Officials also issued a statement stating that everyone should discontinue their Tylenol products. So at this point, the police step in. It became very obvious that someone tampered with these bottles of Tylenol, but who could have done it? First, the police ruled out all manufacturers. After researching where the bottles came from, they ended up realizing they came from different pharmaceutical companies. Plus, all seven deaths occurred in the Chicagoland area. So it was pretty easy to rule out that the manufacturers had something to do with the tampered bottles. At that point, the police decided that they had a culprit out on the loose, believed to have acquired the bottles of Tylenol from the various retail outlets. The police figured that the source was most likely supermarkets and drugstores. Over a period of several weeks, with the culprit likely adding the cyanide to the capsules, then methodically returning to the stores to place the bottles back on the shelves. In addition to the only five bottles that led to the actual victim's death, three other tampered with bottles were actually later found. 
So after realizing they had a pretty big mess on their hands, Johnson & Johnson actually distributed warnings to hospitals around the area and distributors and decided to halt all Tylenol production and advertising. On October 5th, Johnson & Johnson issued a nationwide recall of Tylenol products. The company also advertised to the national media for individuals not to consume any of their products that actually contained acetaminophen. It was actually determined that only these capsules had been tampered with. After all of the products had been recalled, Johnson & Johnson offered to exchange all Tylenol capsules already purchased by the public for solid tablets. Whew, that was quite the history lesson. So let's go ahead and move on to the various suspects in the murders. All right, so let's go ahead and start with a man named James William Lewis. You know, I've always heard to never trust somebody with two first names. This guy has literally three first names. James William Lewis. Super shady, if you ask me. Not that anyone asked me, but anyway, moving on. So James ended up sending a letter to Johnson & Johnson demanding $1 million to stop the cyanide-induced murders. Police were unable to link him to the crimes, as he and his wife were actually living in New York. He was apparently convicted of extortion and ended up serving 13 years of a 20-year sentence and was actually released in 1995 on parole. Apparently in 2009, There were some documents that were released that showed the Department of Justice investigators concluded Lewis was responsible for the poisonings, despite the fact that he did not have enough evidence to charge him. And then this guy has literally been denying all responsibility for several years. So why this guy decided to try to extort money out of Johnson & Johnson is just beyond me, and it's pretty apparent this guy had nothing to do with it. So moving on to our next suspect. So Roger Arnold was actually investigated and clear of the killings. He had a nervous breakdown due to all the media attention, which he ended up blaming some guy named Marty Sinclair, a bar owner on. In the summer of 1983, Roger Arnold actually shot and killed John Stanisha, who he mistook for Sinclair. Stanisha was an unrelated man who did not know Arnold. Arnold was convicted in January of 1984 and served a 15-year out of a 30-year sentence for second-degree murder, and he ended up dying in 2008. So this guy was just, like, randomly blamed by some other guy, and he ended up shooting someone else who wasn't even the guy who blamed him. If that's not a hot mess, I don't know what is. So something kind of interesting that the Chicago Tribune decided to do, in early 1983, at the FBI's request... One of the columnists actually published the address and grave location of the first and youngest victim, Kellerman. The story was written with the Kellerman family's consent and was proposed by FBI criminal analyst John Douglas on the theory that the perpetrator might visit the house or grave site if he were made aware of the locations. Both sites were kept under 24-hour surveillance for several months, but... The killer did not surface. And finally, Lori Dan, who actually poisoned and shot people in May 1988 on a rampage in and around the Winnetka, Illinois area, was briefly considered as a suspect, but no direct connection was found. So let's go ahead and discuss some of the newer investigations that have happened. In 2009, January, Illinois authorities renewed the investigation 
Federal agents searched the home of Lewis in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and seized a number of items. In Chicago, an FBI spokesperson declined to comment, but said we'll have something to release later, possibly. I mean, honestly, though, it's pretty apparent they did not find anything. So it was kind of cocky to go ahead and say, oh, yeah, we'll probably release information later when they ended up not doing that. So moving on, I digress. Law enforcement officials have received a number of tips related to the case coinciding with its anniversary. In a written statement, the FBI explained, This review was prompted in part by the recent 25th anniversary of the crime and resulting publicity. Given many of the recent advancements in forensic technology, it was only natural that a second look be taken at the case and recovered evidence. In January 2010, both Lewis and his wife submitted DNA samples and fingerprints to the authorities. Lewis stated, if the FBI plays it fair, I have nothing to worry about. In 2011, the FBI actually requested DNA samples from the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Apparently, Kaczynski denied ever having possessed potassium cyanide. The first four Unabomber crimes happened in Chicago and its suburbs from 1978 to 1980. And Kaczynski's parents had a suburban Chicago home in Lombard, Illinois, in 1982, where he stayed occasionally. I feel like that's one case I'm not super knowledgeable on is that Unabomber case. In fact, I didn't even know that he was active in the Chicagoland area until I researched this case. Honestly, the most I've ever known about the Unabomber is when I would come downstairs with a hoodie on and the hood on over my head and my dad would make a joke saying I looked like the Unabomber. So, yeah, I should probably do a case on the Unabomber just so I can learn a little bit more about it and not just get a dad joke in return. (laughs) Shout out to my dad. Okay, and finally, one of the last discussion topics about recent findings. A surveillance photo was found of Paula Prince purchasing cyanide-tampered Tylenol at a Walgreens on 1601 North Wells Street and has been released by the Chicago Police Department. Police believed that a bearded man seen just feet behind Prince may be the killer. Okay, now stop for just a second. Since when is it illegal to just have a beard and stand behind somebody buying Tylenol? Could very well be that the police were just kind of making stuff up as they went along and they needed somebody to at least look like a suspect. Although I don't know why having a beard makes you look like a suspect. I don't know. I'm not a police officer, though, so whatever. I feel like this would have been better recepted if they came out and said like, hey, we have a concrete reason to believe this guy has something to do with these Tylenol poisonings. Instead, they just came out and said, this guy has a beard. We think he's a suspect. And in no way am I trying to be disrespectful. I'm just like confused as to why they would just come out and say this and not give me some kind of reasoning. Anyway, I digress. So you know how most medicines that you can buy over the counter now have protectant seals and tamper-proof equipment? That is thanks to this case. This incident definitely inspired the pharmaceutical, food, and consumer product industries to develop tamper-resistant packaging. I feel like any millennial will just go ahead and think that this has just always been a part of life, but it's so weird to think that it was only in 1982 that this was not a standard of production. And in sadder news, um, there were actually hundreds of copycat attacks involving Tylenol and other over-the-counter medications and other products all around the United States immediately following the Chicago deaths. 
So I guess one could argue that out of the sad deaths and tragicness of these cases, some good ended up coming out of it because without these cases, we probably would not have any sort of tamper-proof packaging. So I guess the one takeaway everyone can have from this episode today is if any sort of product you are about to ingest appears to have been tampered with, don't put it in your body. This goes for food, drink, medicines, X, Y, and Z. If you have any further questions about this, I suggest you actually do some research and check out the FDA's website. There's a lot of information available to you on there. It really is a shame that we ended up having to lose innocent lives due to poor packaging. Well, thanks for joining me for a brief history on the Chicago Tylenol murders. And if you have any further questions about this case, you can do a quick Google search and find out all about it online. I'm Melissa Lee, and this has been Mysteriously Morbid. Mysteriously Morbid is a self-produced podcast. Like and follow Mysteriously Morbid on Facebook at Mysteriously Morbid Podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Mysteriously Morbid underscore pod. Follow us on Twitter at MYS underscore Morbid pod.